Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. Today's show is recorded in a room next to a building site, so apologies for the drilling you may hear sporadically throughout. However, we will be discussing the gender pay gap dissected, how broadcasters and publishers have fared, now all the results are in. Also on the programme, our panel will discuss Monocle's intern woes, Disney's lifeline for Sky News, and just who will be presenting this year's McTaggart keynote in Edinburgh. All that, plus we crunch the numbers in our media quiz. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me today for her media podcast debut is journalist and documentary maker Kieran Yates. Hello, Kieran. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Great pleasure. Thank you for thanking me. I don't think that's ever happened before. Um, <laughs> what have you been up to this week? Give us an, ex- an exciting glimpse into your media week. I am writing a feature at the moment about digital death. So sort of beyond the point of what happens to your social media when you die, but more about how this conversation is moving into will writers and and that sort of world. So how are these conversations about who you elect to shut down your Facebook, being part of will requests and what happens next? What happens to your Bitcoins? What happens to your Audible and your iTunes? Uh, Yeah, so I'm investigating all, all manners of death this week. What happens to my Audible downloads is really something that I think I can keep out of the hands of the law, is my instinct. But Bitcoins, that's fascinating. Bitcoins you can keep, but your iTunes library you can't keep. Mm. So enjoy it while you have it. Okay, good. <laughs> Make the most of it. Also joining us this week, media podcast regular. Matt Deegan, radio consultant and MD of Folder Media. What have you been up to, Matt? So for Fun Kids, we run a children's radio station and we are going to take a show to Edinburgh this year. Oh, excellent. So we are just working out what that is, mm-hmm. uh, but we're there for the whole month and that should be quite fun. So we've been working with the presenters trying to come up with how the show is going to work. And when you say taking a show to Edinburgh, do you mean broadcasting, as it were, from Edinburgh, or do you mean that you'll have a live experience for kids to come and see? No, a live experience. So we've come up with a, a new theatre-style show. Oh, you're going to do so well with that. Seriously, any old shit for kids in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> I know someone who was a puppeteer at Edinburgh University, and that he paid for his degree doing puppet shows Excellent. over the summer. You're on to a winner. But of course, your show will be great quality as yes. well. Right, so let's talk about the gender pay results. The UK's media companies have reported their respective gender pay gaps and some make for uncomfortable reading. Amongst the worst offenders are The Telegraph and Global, with around a 35% pay gap between men and women, compared to the national average of 18%. Uh, The BBC, of course, much reviled in the press for their statistics since they went first, uh, and The Guardian and The Evening Standard all rated amongst the lowest in the sector, and Indie Endemol Shine had no pay gap 
at all. Kieran, what did you make of the findings? I think it's interesting because with companies like The Guardian and the BBC, we hold them to greater accounts. So I suppose that's why, not only because they were the first to release, but why the BBC was under so much heat and disappointment, I think, for a lot of female broadcasters. But looking at the statistics now, I mean, I'm not surprised when I look at somewhere like Global and Telegraph Media Group, but I do think that conversations are changing internally, but we need to really start challenging notions of talking about how much we earn in the workplace, really having open discussion about what that means, what these disparities mean, empowering a new generation of women into work to feel like they can have a place where they're negotiating salary or at least having an open discussion about it because while I'm not surprised by the globals and telegraph media groups I don't think that's that gives them any license to continue so I think it's a little bit of fatigue but also a little bit of now time for activism. But when you say about negotiating a salary we don't know because we haven't got the stats on it whether people are being paid equally for the same role regardless of gender what we know is that there's a gender pay gap, but that might simply be, and I'm not saying this is a good or bad thing, but it might simply be that more men have more senior positions and more women have more junior positions. So it's a bit more complicated than paying women more or getting women to negotiate more. It's getting women into senior roles. And then the question comes, do they want them? Are they applying for them? Absolutely. But, you know, the first step of finding your voice in these spaces where you feel like perhaps you're not as visible as you'd like to be or you're not as heard as you'd like to be is all part of this conversation about, you know, the work that you're going to have after you take time off if you choose to for maternity leave. The conversations that you have about applying for senior positions and the mentors in the building who are around to support you adequately. So negotiating pay is just one step of a much larger ideological shift that has to happen within our workplaces. And then you can start talking about the ethnic pay gap, which is also depressing reading. Yeah, well, that probably is the next thing, isn't it? Uh, Matt, what was your reaction to these stats? I think when you dig into some of the data, people describe the different quartiles. When you can start to see a bit about, is it at the top, is it at the bottom? For me, I looked obviously at the, the companies connected to radio as my sector. Global's disappointing. I don't think it's surprising when pretty well, much... I can't think of a senior woman at Global, well, so that's, that's, the, that's why, yeah, isn't it? The, there's no women that run any of their radio stations. <laughs> and there are no female breakfast any, show hosts either, so uh, or that's run, where the big salary is. Or run the big departments. I think both, both of you guys work there, so you've probably got a, a closer look into that business. But I think that's that's the thing that brings up, doesn't it? You get to, to see it. It's embarrassing for everyone and they'll have discussions about it and they'll have to engage with it. And I'm sure a lot of the staff there are grumpy. But it's also beyond embarrassing. It's bad. It's bad for culture. It's bad for the social culture. It's bad for economically. You know, the, the case for diversity across the board is about hiring from diverse talent pools. And so when you see these this sorts of data, of course, we have to apply nuance and complexities to what we see. But... The message that I get from that is that they're not fielding from diverse data pools. The same people are moving from across companies. Perhaps there is a bit of you know latent nepotism in these industries, which we've always known about. But it's more than embarrassing. It's bad. It's bad for our cultural output. And it's bad for people looking at our industries, wanting to be in it and feeling like they're not going to see themselves. I think there is a, a bit of you know, all these companies, probably if you went through 10 years of statements they have given lip service to it. Yeah. And the embarrassment is that they're being shown up that it's just, it is just all talk. Mm-hmm. And that cultural change, I mean, let's just talk about what that might practically mean. So let's talk about the issue of having a family, because, of course, men are fathers as well as women being mothers. But it does seem particularly to be the case that when we're, women return to the workplace in media, this is a particular problem, there aren't jobs being offered 
that they are able to flexibly do. It's very difficult to say to a company like Global, I want to come in and work two days a week or three days a week. Those jobs just don't exist. That seems to me like a simple thing that can be amended within the company culture that isn't being. I think so, but also coming from someone who's on a lot of freelance backgrounds. So actually, I've, I've also worked with Global on short-term contracts. I've worked across lots of the companies that are in this list on short-term contracts, on freelance contracts. So there is ability to you know, be put forward for these things. If you're an expert radio producer at the BBC it's, and you leave your job, it's perfectly feasible that you might do short-term contract work once you've finished your contract there. A short-term there. contract is typically work six days a week, work 10 hours a day for three weeks, isn't it? It's not, I want to work three afternoons a week. Right. But I think that the gig economy has meant that actually our approach to hours and our approach to working is completely different. You know, as a freelancer who has come out of this industry post-recession and has seen the, the massive shift that's happening, actually, for a lot of myself and my peers who are fellow journalists and broadcasters and producers... What they're finding is that these long-term jobs, the economic infrastructure that might have existed 10 years ago, don't exist anymore in the same way. And the people that have them are increasingly lucky. So, you know, to go back to the original point, women or men who have taken time out, who are then going back into work, don't feel like they're support, but this is an industry wide thing you know they're the they're the last people to make the gains so it's it's a more fundamental issue with the problems of of insecure work hours that aren't given to you of zero hour contracts of short-term contracts and so I think that there needs to be a bit of discussion and dismantling about how you manage security when this is where we find ourselves and actually I mean this is a government incentive isn't it which is why these figures are coming out you know it's all industries have to publish their figures on this over a certain size and obviously we're the media podcast we talk about the media industry but actually feels like the whole country is talking about the media industry and their gender pay gap when this is about all businesses and actually within the media industry on this show for example we've been talking about this issue for about four or five years now so although there's obviously a lot to be done it feels like the media industry at least has vocalized that there's a problem long before a lot of other industries but still getting in the neck a bit about this. Yeah I think the other thing you've got to remember is the media loves talking about the media in the media and so there is disproportionate coverage of ourselves in newspapers it also doesn't help that the the newspapers love knocking the bbc and it's a very easy thing to knock and then the other bit is people see talent on the screen they are interested in what anton decker paid and what newsreaders are paid or how much television show costs to make and they assume that that's too much money and the newspapers know it's it's easy to pop something in there that makes a lot of the readers go i can't believe that these people are paid this much Well, have I got news for you, Matt? In related news, uh, I can't believe I just did that, Ian Hislop and Paul Merton have been speaking to the Radio Times about their new series, pondering whether female MPs are too modest to take a turn in the presenter chair. Kieran, your thoughts? I don't even know what that means, really, because (laughs) it's actually sort of connected but departed from this idea that women aren't funny that you know this kind of long held myth that female comedians don't do as well you know there isn't a a big enough audience for them but this is something else isn't it this kind of idea of modesty which is also funny because I always think about that in a in a Muslim context as my family would use it but it's strange it's like what we need to unpick exactly what that means what's he talking about is he saying that they're not as open as forthright to talk about the issues of the day as their male counterparts is it that they're closed is it that they're more guarded in a post-Diane Abbott 
moment that we find ourselves where she's up for a lot of abuse. What does he really mean by that? Well, what Hislop and Merton said was that if you look back across the guest booking over the last, whatever it is, 15, 20 years, however long the show's been running, the only female MP that's ever come on, I believe, as a serving MP was Anne Widdicombe. So what they're saying is it's not that we haven't asked, it's that female MPs always say no. And they didn't actually provide a reason for that. They just said too modest. Maybe it isn't modesty, maybe it's something else. Maybe we it's... know the reason though, don't we? You know, if you're not creating a space where female MPs necessarily feel comfortable or feel like they're going to be heard or they're going to have enough space or, you know, they're going to be able to own the conversation, have some agency, not have to grapple with, you know, male comedians who are monopolising time. Of course they would say no, but, you know, I think... But, what, but why is that different? Why would Boris Johnson say yes, but a female MP would say no? Is that a problem with the show, that it has a gladiatorial, confrontational, male vibe to it? Because that's the style of the comedy people are tuning in to watch. Yeah, of course. That's definitely the issue. It's like, you know, if you have a show that's based on these, not ag- aggressive, but overpowering male voices, and you feel like you're going to have to battle to find your own voice or get your way in, of course that's undesirable. Of course but, but, you want to find a but space. But do you see my point? I mean, way. Nigel Farage must feel like that too. When he goes on, have I got news for you? He's thinking, well, I'm going to have to fight to have my voice heard and they're going to be taking the piss out of me the whole time. It shouldn't be a male-female issue. But it is, because that's different, isn't it? If you're, if you're a marginalised voice in the room, if you're already a minority voice in the room, then of course you're going to find it more difficult. And actually the responsibility is for people to allow you space. That doesn't mean people have to go easier on you at all. It doesn't mean that you're not going to, you know, be lambasted in the same way as Nigel Farage would be. But it does mean that there's a collective responsibility to make sure that you're heard, that you don't feel like you can't have a witty repartee, that you can't have rebuttals. And that's the issue here, I think. What I always found quite odd watching Have I Got News for You as a viewer, Matt, is that sometimes there were weeks that would go by where there would be five men. There'd be a male host and and four men. I mean, that's completely... I mean, I'd watch that and think that is like clearly just ridiculous when you're talking about the news. But also, often the women that come on, they might be funny, people like Lauren Laverne, but they're not comedians. Mm. So a lot of the bookings when women come on aren't female comedians. I think there are so many female comedians out there. I don't quite know why that's happening. Absolutely. I think, though, interestingly, when the the series first started, the two choices of hosts were Angus Deaton or Sandy Toxvic. I think she says, there's a line that one of the bits of feedback was, you know, we can't have a a woman in charge of the news back, I guess, in the late 80s, early 90s. I think there's there's a couple of interlocking issues, aren't there? There's have they created a space where women want to come on? Are they making efforts enough efforts to book women and then also I think there is a bit about what's the feedback women get in social media when putting their head above the the parapet is disproportionately negative compared to men I think the booking thing is interesting one of the things I do is I run a, a radio conference and we make efforts to to make it 50 50 male and female we have to put more effort into getting women to agree to to come on and I think there is a bit of if we ask a man who isn't perfect for a role he is quicker to say yes than a woman who is more qualified than her to say yes and what we try and do is one ask more women than men to try and get the percentage up and also try and be flexible about support and training particularly if they haven't spoken before to encourage more of it so you can't just go well I asked 50 50 you've, you've got to do a little bit more and in an ideal world you shouldn't have to but if you if you really want to make the difference you've got to you've got to go for it do you think that quota style is the right 
method to deal with this, Kieran. So we've seen the BBC this week also promising to achieve parity in the gender of contributors to news programmes next year. Mm. It's not amongst, I think, their reporters and government ministers. Obviously, they can't do much about that. But they're talking about the guests they have on as experts. 50% of them are going to be women. Is that the right way to deal with this? I think it's a start, isn't it? I think the main aim here is visibility. And it's attacking an unconscious bias, which not only in our industry, but UK-wide, we see displays itself in interview processes when people are asking for leadership roles. You know, perhaps they are unconsciously more biased towards men for that. And the more nurturing, more interpersonal skills roles, they might look at women. You know, I don't think that it's a new conversation to argue that there is an unconscious bias in the way that these things operate. And one way to start attacking that is by really promoting women, you know, especially women of colour, into these positions where they wouldn't necessarily get in. Obviously, I'm, I'm an Asian woman. I used to think when I got into this industry that it was really difficult being part of quota schemes or being part of diversity schemes because perhaps that somehow always undermined your position, that somehow you had only been brought in based on a quota box-ticking exercise. But actually what I think now is that this has been the most effective way of becoming visible, of dismantling old world structures that felt like they were never going to change. It's an imperfect solution, but I think that this is the best that we have. And I think it really works, actually, because it does all of that nuanced, gentle on the ground stuff, which is saying, here's a woman. She actually is an expert in this thing. She is our Chinese correspondent and she does speak Mandarin and she is our expert. And I think that you have to create what you want to see. And that's a good first step. And I'm just curious, just as a side note on all of this, this story about Hislop and Merton came out of the Radio Times. What is their secret? Uh, they seem to get amazing quotes that really, you know, <laughs> grab the news agenda. It's the Radio Times we're talking about here. How do they do that? Is it just because people think, it's the Radio Times, how tough can it be? Guard is down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe that because it's actually a profitable magazine, they're investing mm. in reporters and journalism who think about what they're going to ask before they ask it. And then publicise it. Imagine week that. after week. Yeah, they seem to have a great story. Before we go to the break, let's squeeze in this from America. The Sinclair Broadcast Group has been accused of forcing journalists to use prepared scripts. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media that was a whole bunch of Sinclair presenters from all over the country on their daily bulletins, compiled by Deadspin. Matt, can you explain what happened here? Uh, yeah, so Sinclair Broadcasting operates a lot of TV stations. Uh, the way America works is that the stations tend to be independently owned or owned by groups, and then they opt into certain networks like ABC and CBS. They're affiliates to those networks. And what the local stations do primarily is the local ad sales and local news. Sinclair has been around quite a long time. They've gradually expanded and, and acquired lots of these um, uh, local stations. And they've started introducing must-read segments on their new shows. And some of these are drop-ins of commentators, and they've picked some slightly odd right-wing people like Boris Epstein, who is a sort of Trump surrogate in the campaign. And then this is interesting. So they they prepared a script notionally as a sort of campaign across their news teams, 
promoting truth but they all just sound like they've all been kidnapped as they had to read the same script but that that bit of it the Mm. idea of having a syndicated network and getting them all to read the same script i mean that is familiar from bbc local radio from global you know itn might do something like that it's not that weird Uh, the difference i think is this has been corporately driven rather than editorially driven so whilst you know the bbc gns sends out updates to all the local radio stations a journalist has decided what's happening a running order has been been put together it's not come from tony hall of like yes you must say these things and Um, and they haven't haven't, also haven't got the option to opt out of it so if they don't feel it's it's right it's tough because you'll be fired if you don't and this is under the spotlight because well a because that video went viral and it's kind of creepy watching the same script being repeated that many times and b because of the association corporately between sinclair management and trump right that's that's the suggestion is they're doing trump's work here by promoting the idea of fake news as his opponents. Sinclair, it seems, and the bosses at Sinclair have got pretty right-wing views. Uh, the main guy in November, I think, to the New Yorker said that all print journalism is pretty much lies and left-wing propaganda, so they don't talk to those people, even though they probably rip their stories for their, their news shows. And also they did a deal with the Trump campaign, when it was a campaign, about access to their stations. Now they say that they offered the same thing to the Clinton campaign and, and they didn't want to take them up on it. So there's a, a little bit of discussion there. But yeah, the terrorism desk, the Boris Epstein things, all of the things they tend to do are from the Fox News playbook. But what's interesting when you aggregate all of the output of those TV channels, they are bigger than Fox News. And I think people trust their local news probably a bit more because they've seen those guys for a long time and it doesn't have that same feeling like if you watch Fox News you kind of know what you're going to get. Although it is worth saying that most of those channels are, they call them affiliates don't they? So they're still branded as ABC or Fox or NBC but they're operated by Sinclair so there's still a corporate vibe to them but it's your friendly local face. Yeah but then I think ABC, CBS and NBC there's a general view that those are more centrist operations and I guess the assumption from a lot of viewers is I'm watching something from ABC when actually they're not, they're watching something from Sinclair. Okay, but if you look at the actual words they said so, Kieran, this is what the script said. Some members of the media use their platforms to push their own personal bias and agenda to control exactly what people think. This is extremely dangerous to a democracy. When you understand the background, Matt's just explained that there's links to Trump and all the rest of it, then you might think, well, this is a little bit frightening. But actually, the words themselves, taken away from Trump's fake news network nonsense, actually, it's not wrong, is it? I mean, there's nothing wrong with highlighting to an audience that they should be aware of what they're reading and listening to. Absolutely. But, you know, this isn't about unpicking words devoid of the context. This is about really understanding how aggressive this context is and how fascinating it is for people working within media to see how this is playing out. So this whole idea of commercial interest versus editorial interest is really interesting. But for me, what's the most fascinating thing is what you just touched on, this idea of packaging your politics through these local friendly faces. So these are people who you have trusted. These are people who you've grown up with. Maybe these are people who, you know, might come and, you know, open your local supermarket suddenly using them as extensions of the state to kind of use these this kind of political rhetoric becomes quite sinister and Orwellian, doesn't it? You know, I don't think political 
or impartial politics and the news is is really our our current moment unfortunately but i do think that the way that this is is operating now is really interesting because suddenly it looks on the outside that trump's agenda is very artfully being transmitted through living rooms and internet stations and and radios across these places and in quite a sinister way so you know this isn't new it was it was done before with Roosevelt and his fireside chats and all that kind of stuff but there's something about this that feels sinister and and when you see it all in this context when you see it used in this way when you see the words operating like this when you realize that it's, it's linked to Trump's and this very quite aggressive far-right rhetoric which ends in hate crimes on the ground suddenly we can't divorce the words from the context and so no matter how many how many times you're reading it you just think it's not sit right what you've got to remember is trump's success you know, his electoral success was a very small percentage of a very small number of states you know he has a very small edge and so making small changes to a small number of people's perceptions about things can be very powerful i think what we've seen for him where there are lots of problems with his administration that a variety of news sources have picked up, it is in their interest to make people disbelieve mainstream media or for for him and his supporters to believe that that's untruth. Because what's going to happen post-Russia investigation, and whether he's targeted or or all of his colleagues are, there's going to be a lot of negativity that will come from that. And his argument will be, this is all fake news, it's all a ploy, it's a liberal ploy, etc, etc. So every little one percentage point that they can gradually shift in people's minds is positive for them and, and will try and keep them in power. I also think it's interesting, just an aside, the way that they're siphoning your information to speak directly to the individual is really effective. So this is something that, you know, the media has used a long time, especially internet. It's, you know, often called the the online conundrum. How do you speak directly to the individual? And BuzzFeed used to use it with their lists that used to go viral as you know, an early adopter of how to up your traffic numbers by doing things like, you know, 35 things you'll only know if you're a Punjabi girl from Harrow. And, you know, so you feel like you're completely spoken to, it's directed completely to you, so you have a secure audience. And this feels like a little bit more of an extension of that. It's siphoning your information, so you're speaking directly to a certain person with a certain profile in the living room, and you feel like you've got their support for life or, you know, their loyalty. So it's it's less about this national conversation and more about siphoning it to the individual. And I think that that's a really effective marketing ploy. It does seem to be effective, doesn't it? I mean, Trump may not get his wall built and he's not going to put Hillary in prison, but he has succeeded in muddling the picture like Putin has in Russia so that the general population in America don't know who to trust anymore. Absolutely. That has worked. Absolutely. He's cre- creates uncertainty. I mean, he lies on his Twitter feed, you know, at the moment talking about all these people flooding over the border, taking advantage of DACA. And it's like, well, number one, you've, you've cancelled DACA, but it only applies for people who were here pre-2007. Either he doesn't understand how things work, pretty high possibility also the other option is that he's lying to people also a very high possibility that's the issue he doesn't even he's not bothered about telling the truth it's all about his own position and message now 
If you're anything like the producers of the media podcast, you may at times need professional edit studios at extremely short notice. And if you find yourself in that scenario, look no further than Run VT. With its 15 offline and two online editing suites, plus a bass like grading theatre, a dubbing suite, and a wonderful voiceover booth. If you want to see what the studios at Run VT are capable of, then there's still time to watch When News Goes Horribly Wrong. I love shows like that. On Channel 5, Sunday 8th of April, 9pm. And to edit your next show, go to runvt.tv now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cosy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Time for some news in brief now. Matt and Kieran are still with me. And at the end of last week, an article appeared in The Guardian entitled Why I'm Suing Over My Dream Internship. The story was written by former intern Amalia Igner. Matt, what was she claiming? Well, I think there seems to be a, a bit of a disagreement between Monocle and her, I think, about what she expected. And it's a very what, diplomatic what, English what, way of putting the situation. What they expected. A bit of, bit of a disagreement. Um, <laughs> but I think there is an interesting, the interesting bit about this is, when I read the story, what I thought, you know, when we take on interns who are paid, does that leak a little bit in what their responsibilities are and then what they want to do and they want to do extra work because they, they want to showed their, their skill to, to get a job. So what she said is she was working at Monocle on an, a paid internship, but it was £30 a day. And for that, basically, she couldn't afford to live. And yet, during her internship, she managed to get a great opportunity to write a cover story for them. And at the moment, she realised that everyone else who was being paid for the publication of her cover story was being paid decently, mm. apart from her. And she thought that wasn't acceptable, that she was being exploited. She'd put in long days, getting coffees for people and all the rest of it. And then when she actually did a bit of journalism, she wasn't paid for that either. Yes, and uh, obviously it's a court case, but if, if that's true... It actually isn't, she hasn't. Okay, seen does that seem wrong? Absolutely. Can a little bit of me see how it happens? Yes, is it entirely malicious? Might be, might not be, but I think there is a bit about setting out your stall as an employer on how things work so that people know 
what's going to happen based on what they do. I mean, what she was writing in this Guardian long read, Kieran, was that basically media companies are addicted to interns. They rely on them to do the stuff that they don't want to pay someone to do. Do you think that's true? I think that there's a couple of things from this. One, of course, this idea of low-paid workers of you know zero hour contracts and all this kind of thing is a conversation that is a universal one well western universal one we hear this conversation all the time in the uk reading this brought back a lot of ptsd for me when i was interning <laughs> very triggering story but the conversation when i was interning maybe like 10 years ago was completely different there was an absolute expectation that this would happen an absolute expectation that you know, you wouldn't always be paid. And if you were going to write, you wouldn't be paid. Now, I think that it's only a good thing that this has moved forward, that now actually, not only should I be paid for the work done, but there's an internal conversation that teaches me about the commissioning process, about word rates, about how much labour and how much work and how much money should be part of these conversations, because that is part of training and internships too. And you're right, it's about marking out editorially from management saying this is our line this is what we want to present when we're having interns in we also want to teach them to be industry ready and part of that conversation is discussing money and labor and how that works in a fair way and also it's about the length of time they're there isn't it i mean how long do you keep your interns for as interns matt actually we very much specify what it is the length of it i don't think lots of companies base their business model on interns working for free but do they get extra value from having extra members of staff to support what they do absolutely and just a last point on that it's not only that it's that we exist in an ideas economy and so having young diverse interns coming through our doors is part of our industry is the backbone of new diverse interesting storytelling something that elvis duran said on the show only last week (laughs) there you go so yeah of course the model is is actually does support new voices coming in but are these voices that are getting cover stories that are doing great ideas that are doing you know great reporting and accessing spaces that's difficult for people to access are they being rewarded or not and if they're not being rewarded where's the incentive to continue doing that I should say Monocle responded to the story in Press Gazette saying that to date they hadn't received a legal claim from her and that they complied with the terms of the national minimum wage of £7.50 an hour. I should also say my favourite bit was when she talked about Tyler Brule using interns to fly out stuff on a plane so that he could have clothes at Fashion Week. Amazing. Um, right. Uh, Disney have indicated they would be happy to purchase Sky News from Rupert Murdoch, even if the proposed merger with 21st Century Fox doesn't take place. Matt, why? So there's a couple of connected deals. Disney want to buy 21st Century Fox. And before that happens, 21st Century Fox are going to buy Sky. Mm. So Disney would like that to happen because they would quite like to own Sky. Unfortunately, Comcast have appeared saying, well, we're going to challenge and maybe win control of Sky. Therefore, it's in Disney's interest for 21st Century Fox to acquire Sky, the rest of Sky, and not Comcast. And if that means promising Sky News exists for 10 years and continues to be a... 15. It's gone up to 15 uh, now. Continue, continue for it to be funded as a loss-making channel. Yeah, this is a multi-billion dollar deal so promising that's fine and you know what if they ended up buying sky and all of sky being sold to comcast i'm sure they'd end up selling it back to comcast or doing something with it it's fine they're going to have to take a massive multi-million pound right uh, you know pay fees if the deal doesn't go through anyway so you know 
100 million quid investment in Sky is probably nothing. So, okay, that's the corporate view. The political view is that there's a problem, the UK government say, with Rupert Murdoch, because this was how this gets very complicated, doesn't it? But 21st Century Fox wanted to first buy out the bit of Sky they didn't own and then sell it to Disney. Yes. But the government have blocked that happening because of disproportionate mogul influence of Murdoch owning Sky well, News. They haven't blocked it. They've raised some competition questions. Paused about. it then, okay. Um, I didn't even pause it. I think yeah, they're, they're going through some some discussions about, about fit and properness and all of those They are making elements. it take longer than he would like. Yes, which and is unfortunate. he's very old. Com- and with Comcast, <laughs> with Comcast appearing, that's not good news okay. for, for 21st Century Fox. So the idea would be, from the government's point of view, if Disney came along and buy Sky News, and the government don't care whether Comcast end up with the rest of it or whether mm. 21st Century Fox end up with the rest of it, whether Disney end up with the rest of it, if Disney come and buy Sky News, that does remove all this issue doesn't it about media plurality because it's Sky yes. News that's the problem yes so is this a win for everybody <laughs> it's good no. news if you're a Sky News employee <laughs> everyone's promised to keep you going but it's mad isn't it because I remember I was working for the Guardian covering the Leveson inquiry and at the time and I remember being glued and fixated to the screen watching it happen minute by minute and you know internally it felt like, oh, what a great moment. This is potentially really a great moment for media reform. That was the term that was being used, you know, for the whole inquiry and the year after. It was this whole unpacking. Tom Watson was really fighting this battle, flying the flag for media reform. Hugh Grant was stepping in, discussing it. Lily Allen, you know, every it felt like, great, this is a, a real moment. And what did we see come out of that? Rupert Murdoch owning Vice, or at least having a, a lot more editorial influence about what was happening there. And then these discussions now. So for me, it feels like, oh, God, I was such a young snowflake. Like, <laughs> being excited about that. But also, like, all jokes aside, this is this is depressing, right? This, this kind of shows us very little movement in the way of reform that we hoped that we would see during that time. What can you say about but, it? But Sky News is going to be win. spun off and have a protected editorial board. So whether or not you like who ends up owning it... It yeah, will be protected the, in the way that The Guardian is. It will have a trust. It will say, this is, is how we work. This is about protected editorial, though, because what we've seen actually come out of Vice over the last year is a, is a little bit of unconfirmed allegations around how much editorial weight that Murdoch has carried and how much it actually affects editorial policy and output. So... Are any of us really 100% sure that this is not going to affect editorial policy? I'm not sure. And that's the issue. Not whether it is or it isn't, but our trust in it. The BBC. We haven't talked about the BBC for a while. They've appointed Jason Phipps as head of their new podcast division. Good appointment, Matt? Uh, I think it's a good appointment. They... He's from The Guardian, I should say. He's, yeah, so he he's ran, head of Guardian the... Audio yeah, so ran on the... this show just a month ago. Well, he yeah, ran the podcast for The Guardian. I mean, I think it causes some Guardian issues. You know, they lost a, a, the Football Weekly hosts and producers who've been very successful separately. Jason's now gone. You know, Guardian Audio was one of the first newspapers to really get into podcasting maybe they did it too early 10 years ago but uh you know with a guardian audio i think that's that's the bigger question the bbc themselves are launching a new audio product in a few months time they are replacing iplayer for radio with the, the new product and in effect what that is they are flipping it so at the moment you go in through live radio channels that's their sort of main front door they're going to flip that the other way and you're going to go into shows and people whether that be catch up or podcasts so the on-demand element is going to be much bigger. Jason's going to commission new podcasts. And there are some questions about whether they want to feature non-BBC podcasts 
in that audio product raises lots of issues for them internally and externally. So on-demand audio is, is at the forefront of what they're doing. So bringing someone from the outside to a, a good hire. Also, for me, this is a bit about what they're doing with I, the TV iPlayer, which in effect is now becoming Netflix. The word catch-up is not mentioned anymore. You know, you're getting box sets, you're getting previews of things. When the first episode drops, you get them all. I think they're trying to make a, a run to do the same thing to audio first. Kieran, do you agree it's right to go for an external candidate for this role? And if, if so, someone from The Guardian? I mean, I, maybe you might have thought someone from NPR or Gimlet in America might have applied for this. I would have thought, you know, I remember when they hired Jonathan Shanin from The New Yorker to be the long read editor. And that felt like it really fit because for me, the, the New York journalism is really at the apex of, of long reads. And I would probably say the same about podcasts you know I think that they're you know American podcasts and the format and the modeling and the commissioning is really ahead of the game so I probably would have thought it would be there as opposed to the Guardian where the podcasts have had varying success I actually used to host the Guardian music weekly podcast a few years ago for a couple of years at the time you're right it felt like they were really early adopters of something and I worked with Jason at that time too and you know, there was lots of internal conversations, but not necessarily always having the resource or not knowing the best way to do it. So definitely there is a spirit to try and do a bit of interesting commissioning. I think probably outside of the BBC is a good move. Not sure if hiring from The Guardian is the best move, only because the headline of it wasn't only his appointment, but his appointment that he would be doing a lot of youth programming. And of course, it's an easy shot to take. It's really funny, of course, another older white man taking the mantle for young, diverse programming. You know, that's that has been a bit of the backlash on Twitter. And I think that that's probably a fair criticism. This doesn't necessarily seem to me from the outsider as like an amazing moment of internal change, let's say. But I think that the spirit of, you know, wanting to find new diverse talent and commissioning new ideas is definitely there. I would be interested to see what the process is. Is it going to be in the way that shows are commissioned at the moment where independents will be able to pitch in? Will it be all internal where people are kind of gaining tender? How, How will this work? I'd like to hear a little bit more about it. But the BBC is sending a message that podcasts are in their future, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Let's talk about the Edinburgh International TV Festival. They've revealed their McTaggart keynote speaker for this year. Kieran, who is it? Michaela Cole. Tell us about her. Oh, I love her. Well, you know what? This is a really good example of great commissioning and independent commissioning and trusting someone who doesn't necessarily have a huge audience. So she is the writer and actress of Chewing Gum, a Channel 4 series. It was commissioned. It hasn't been recommissioned for various reasons, but now she's moved over to do Netflix and she's in films and she's doing lots of interesting script writing, producing and acting. So she was relatively unknown in terms of TV world and those circles. The script went through Channel 4 and was commissioned and and did really well. I think she's up for a BAFTA, I saw yesterday. Yeah, I think that this is a great moment. I, I expect that she will talk about stuff like diversity, about, you know, especially young black women on screen, having agency in the room with script writers. Because when you watch Chewing Gum... One of the things for me that really stands out is that it sounds and feels authentic. It feels on the ground because the voices are authentic, because, you know, this is storytelling that's happening on the ground and people are looking in the the room very different and sounding very different to what we've seen before. So I expect she'll talk about those issues, but I expect she'll also talk about 
the importance of arts funding, of supporting new voices, of making sure that they're getting in, of training, of mentoring, of hustling, all of all of these things that we can't hear enough of, really. Okay, well, we look forward to going to Edinburgh and hearing that. Matt, does it matter that some of the TV executives in the room are going to have to Google her before they go to the talk? No, not necessarily. They'll be there anyway. Be good to hear a different voice. Okay, there is just time for our media quiz. This week, it's entitled Follow the Money. Numbers are very much the trend of the week. So here's three more in the form of currency. I'll give you the number. You tell me in what way it appeared in the media news this week. Best of three, you buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So Kieran, you will say... Kieran. And Matt, you will say... Matt. Here is number number one. Buzz in when you know the answer. One million pounds. Sky. Buzz in with your name when you know Kieran. the answer. Kieran. Skybet. Yes, uh, sort of. I, I think, yeah, it is the amount that Skybet were fined this week for allowing hundreds of potentially vulnerable people to keep betting after they asked to be barred. Here is number number two. Five million pounds. Matt. Matt. Is that how much Bake Off? Yes. Is this Amazon? Yes. Amazon are the new Bake Off sponsor. Yes, uh, they are. Yes. Um, what does that get them, the £5 million, pounds, you know? Do they, they get the main show, the spin-off show, yes. the celebrity shows, yes. my new baking programme as well. No. And presumably some sort of Alexa skill, I guess. That's probably. Baked in. Maybe Alexa becomes Sandy Toxfic, I don't know. <laughs> we could potentially imagine Amazon buying the programme in the future. I wonder if this is just step mm. one. They need to stump up another £70 million. They can buy the whole thing. Yeah, get the tent and all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here is number number three. It's the tie break. 9.7 million pounds. Matt. Matt. Oh, <laughs> Matt. I'm going to um, give it to Matt. So this is, is this Future Publishing have bought, have they bought Media Week or the company that own Media Week? Music Week. Music Week, yes. yes. Uh, Future Publishing have acquired Music Week and other brands owned by New Bay Media. So more consolidation in the magazine industry, basically. Do you think that is a sign of strength or weakness? Oh, do you know what? Who's cracked the online conundrum? Like, as long as I'm getting paid as a journalist at this point, I don't even care. Well, on that note of optimism, my thanks to Kieran Yates and Matt Deegan, and thanks to you for listening. And if you're the kind of person who feels guilty when presenters ask for contributions to a show, then why not try taking out a voluntary subscription to this one? You will feel that burden lifted try it head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount for us to money grab and remember you can catch up with our previous episodes and get new episodes as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website themediapodcast.com i've been ollie man the producer matt hill the media podcast is a ppm production until next time bye-bye Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Andrea, founder of a boutique handbag brand, Andy, and this is why I switched to Shopify. I tried three other platforms prior to Shopify, and I remember my breaking point was when I would try to make one little change and my entire site would go down. With the drag and drop theme editor, we don't need to hire a developer to do any coding. Each theme is automatically optimized on mobile. It's incredible. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Go to shopify.com slash listen to take your business to the next level today. 